0: ministry trainee year uh, here at the church. Uh, I'm actually finishing in um, just about a month, which is uh, sad in many ways. Um, I'm very glad to say that I've been met with a lot of, uh, a lot of friendship, a lot of love from church members here. Um, and I've learned a lot not only from the preaching, um, but also really the ways that I've seen church members serve the Lord Jesus uh, and each other. So really, it's a privilege uh, to be asked to present God's words uh, to the church as a whole, and I hope that uh, God will speak through uh, through me this morning. You might be able to tell uh, that I'm not feeling 100%. I've been hit with a, a double whammy of hay fever and a summer cold, so forgive me if I sniff through the sermon. Um, but considering that I am speaking about suffering, perhaps my state is appropriate for that. So in 1789... The poet William Blake published his collection, Songs of Innocence. One of the poems in it was The Chimney Sweeper, about a young chimney sweep called Tom. Uh, This chimney sweep, he's miserable with his terrible experience in life, until one night he has a dream of heaven. In this dream, Tom and all his chimney sweep friends are released from their coffins of black uh, into a world of sunshine and green plains, as an angel tells Tom that... If he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. So Tom awakes and goes off to work happy, securing the knowledge of what awaits him at the end of his life. But Blake didn't leave it at that. In his 1794 collection, Songs of Experience, he published a quite different poem, which was also called The Chimney Sweeper. Ooh. A little black thing among the snow, crying, weep, weep, in notes of woe. Where are thy father and mother, say? They are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. With just three verses, Blake completely undercuts the happy naivety of the first version of the poem. Uh, Spiritual hope is no longer seen as something that comforts the suffering, but something that allows the pious to ignore suffering, to avoid engaging with it altogether. This view is perhaps uh, summed up best in the phrase too heavenly-minded to be of much earthly use. And if you're not a Christian, perhaps you thought uh, that yourself, of Christians' attitudes uh, to this world and to the suffering around us. Perhaps you thought, uh, thought uh, that's a common view if you are a Christian within the church. Think of cultural portrayals of vicars, for instance. They're often kind of uh, mild, ineffectual men, uh, somewhat out of touch with the realities of this world. For those of you who know The Simpsons, think of Ned Flanders. It all raises the question, are Christians just living in a dream world, using our belief in a blissful afterlife to avoid engaging in the very real suffering of the world around us? Well, at first glance, the final chapter of Philippians doesn't seem to allay these accusations. As he approaches the end of his letter, Paul reels off a succession of uh, pithy sayings that become very familiar and popular in the church. Among them are his exhortation to rejoice in the Lord always, also his instruction to think about whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, and so on. So it's these verses that our accuser could perhaps base his allegations on. What? Rejoice always? Even when a loved one dies or an earthquake kills hundreds, are we to just smile and laugh and shrug it away? And thinking about whatever is true, pure, and pleasing, are we to just ignore injustice? Because those aren't pleasant things to think about. But what I want to talk about this morning is how, by seeing these verses within the context of Paul's whole argument, we can see that Paul couldn't be saying anything more different, although perhaps not in the way we'd want. Because while we might be able to justify a kind of uh, Ned Flanders approach if our faith is a purely individual, uh, vertical relationship with God, Paul is emphatic throughout uh, Philippians that the Church, as Christ's body, exists as one body, together, sharing in the glory of Christ's resurrection, yes, but also, in a very real way, sharing in each other's suffering. In this last chapter, Paul reiterates uh, this corporate nature of the church. If we really want to rejoice in the Lord and think about whatever is true, we must follow his teaching and example. But first, Paul does command something that involves an individual response. Rejoice. But far from being a glib and uh, unhelpful order just to cheer up in our own strength, we are to rejoice in the Lord. So this isn't some kind of positive thinking, fad telling us that the answer is within ourselves. No, the reason for our rejoicing is that the Lord is near. It's also not about ignoring our problems and our suffering. In prayer, we read that we are to let your requests be known to God. I think the model for this has got to be the Psalms. And there we see uh, the Psalmists being entirely open about their struggles, about their suffering, being brutally honest with God, even as they pray for his deliverance. They didn't believe it was wrong to express their troubles, to express their suffering in the strongest ways possible. So neither should we. I once saw an episode of uh, The Big Questions on BBC One, which had an atheistic vicar uh, as a guest. When he was asked who he prayed to, he said he prayed to the universe. I think it became quite apparent that prayer, uh, for him, uh, was really more about making yourself feel secure uh, in the grand order of things. But Christian prayer couldn't be more different. It's about recognising that the answers don't lie within ourselves, but that as sinful people we're desperately in need of a merciful God. And the result of this, Paul says, it's peace. Peace that transcends all understanding. I think the key watchword uh, for many secular humanists these days uh, is rationality. So it's a good thing to be rational We should strive to build our beliefs and ethical choices on nothing but rationality. But the question really is whether we really are rational beings at all. I think all of us, if we're honest, uh, would have to admit that we have many fears and we make many decisions uh, on the basis of feelings which could hardly be called rational. Sometimes we can barely understand uh, our feelings ourselves and I doubt that secular humanists are very different. Our culture at large certainly isn't. Worry, anxiety uh, is extremely common throughout our culture. And I think just being told to think more rationally about things just doesn't help. We continue to confound and confuse ourselves. Why do I feel this way? What on earth possessed me to do that? How good it is, then, to know that the one who formed our hearts and minds is able to give us peace despite our limited understanding. He will give this to us when we come to him in humility, recognising our sin and our weakness. And it's this utter dependence on God that Paul has already stressed throughout this letter. As he wrote in chapter 3, verse 8, "'I have suffered the loss of all things,' I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So our rejoicing isn't to be attained just by shoving our problems to the side and trying to forget about them. It's about recognising that only God can give us peace through all circumstances as we bring our problems and our suffering to him. And already we can see that although this does require an individual response, it has an effect on us as a group as well. So in verse 9, let your gentleness be evident to all. I'd conjecture that as we, as we pray with humility, as we admit that we don't have the answers within ourselves to our sin and suffering, it will lead us to be humble towards each other, even correcting each other with gentleness in light of our own weakness and our own dependency on God. And even beyond the church walls, uh, our dependency on God will have a powerful effect as people see this peace that transcends all understanding. Uh, I had a friend of mine at university whose uh, mother was told that she had breast cancer. And the doctor who told uh, her mum this while her dad was there as well was completely taken aback by their completely peaceful response. They they told him they were Christians and that they had a hope that goes beyond death. They had a peace that transcends understanding for many people because if there's anything that people fear, it is death. As people see this peace, they'll realise it's not a peace that paints over the reality of our pain and suffering, but a peace That transcends it, because we have an anchor for our rejoicing, someone who is constantly faithful and unchanging throughout our treacherous and changing circumstances. I think it's in light of this that we're to see the next few verses. Thinking about whatever is true, pure and commendable doesn't mean ignoring sin and suffering. You only have to look at the horrific accounts of, of murder, torture and rape that God's allowed to be put into scripture to see that a strong faith in God goes hand in hand with taking a long, hard look at the realities of evil. It involves seeing those things in light of what is true, pure and commendable. As people who've been transformed. By the renewing of our minds. This in turn trains us to recognise evil in the world around us. It helps us to consider how to respond to it. I think it's fair to say that our society is in a real quandary over what exactly is true, pure and commendable. When God's authoritative revelation is rejected as a standard of those things, it becomes very hard to find any absolute standard for those values at all. All you're left with is your culturally conditioned beliefs, which can't really be said to be any more true or false than the next person's. But praise God that he has spoken to us through his word, which can lead us to know all that is true and pure, if we will only come to him in humility, acknowledging that without his help, we really are like people stumbling around in an impenetrable fog. So, we've seen how being a Christian doesn't involve downplaying the suffering and evil, uh, either that found in us personally or in the world more generally. In fact, it's necessary to recognise those things so that we might be humbled in the first place and seek God's help. But the question could still be asked, isn't this still a bit individualistic? could this still just be about me and my personal relationship with Jesus, concerned only with my own suffering? But absolutely not. For Paul, a Christian who just listens to sermons on the internet and never goes to church, is missing out on a huge part of what it is to imitate Christ, sharing in the sufferings of others. Take a look at verse 10. Uh, Paul rejoices that the Philippians were concerned for him in his imprisonment. Not only that, verse 14 tells us that they shared his distress. This idea of sharing in a common experience um, has been a big theme throughout the letter. So in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says how the Philippians share in the gospel. In the same chapter, he writes how they share God's grace with him. And in verse 27... He writes how he wants them to stand firm in one spirit. But here in chapter 5, it becomes apparent that this sharing must also include a sharing of suffering, as well as a sharing of glory. Why? Because to do so is to follow Christ's example. Our God, who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, as Paul wrote in chapter 2. And to some extent, we're called to do the same. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes how he wants to share in Christ's sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By definition, resurrection can't happen unless something is already dead that's going to be resurrected. If you're a Christian, you've been raised into a new spiritual life now, and you'll be raised into new physical life in the future. But in order for either of those things to happen, you have to die first. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin. Being crucified hurts. Having our old sinful desires ripped away is painful, especially Uh, when those desires gave us some kind of structure or meaning to our lives. But if we're to be resurrected into Christ's new life, our old selves must first be killed. So how does this relate to us sharing in the suffering of fellow believers? Well, it's not an exact parallel. Um, Not all suffering is caused by sin, of course. But I think it should make us think Uh, just how far we're willing to go to truly engage uh, with our fellow believers. Because if sharing and suffering is somehow necessary before a resurrection takes place, our reticence uh, to truly share other Christians' pain could be hindering future hope for them. So when my dad um, suffered a bout of depression a few years ago, Uh, there were many Christians who were genuinely helpful and supportive. But there were some who just quoted the first verse of our passage at him, "Rejoice in the Lord always. And they couldn't quite understand why he couldn't just shake himself out of it. Now, apart from anything else, I think that attitude revealed a desire not to share in a brother's distress. Simply throwing a few Bible verses at someone from a distance isn't really sharing... In their predicament, I'd venture to say it's a way of keeping them at arm's length to minimise the personal cost of helping them out. You can just hand out some little advice and walk off with no extra complication in your life. I think we all do it and we need to really consider, are we really willing to mourn with those who mourn as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice? Do we really care? Are there people in this church family uh, who are suffering that perhaps you've even been avoiding because it might, uh, or what it might cost for you? The personal cost is high. We may fear adding more complications to our lives. um, But I think if we want to have more than a superficial love for each other, we've got to seek to truly be with each other in our suffering. I think also... There's another side to this. So in the UK, I think we can also be quite reluctant for others to share in our distress. We say, oh, you shouldn't have when people go out of their way for us, for our benefit. Or don't worry about it, I'll be fine uh, when people are concerned over our troubles. Um, I'd suggest that just like asking God to help us, accepting others' help and support can also be a question of humility. Once more, it requires us to admit that we don't have it all together, that we do need strength from outside ourselves, that we're not self-sufficient. I don't think there should be any shame in this, uh, but true thankfulness. When our Christian brothers and sisters um, weep with us, we should be thankful that we have people who care for us enough to do this, Thankful that we're part of a church that understands what it is to act as one body. When you stub your toe, uh, you don't just walk on thinking, oh, that's fine, it's just a a tiny part of me. No, you, you double over and you grab it and grit your teeth. And I think that's something like how it should be with us. An intense awareness of the suffering in each other's lives that calls forth genuine sympathy. But this sympathy shouldn't remain something inward and purely emotional. Depending on the situation, uh, practical help and action will be needed. Paul was not embarrassed about receiving that kind of help. Verse 16, he writes how the Philippians sent me help for my needs more than once. I mean, if we're often reticent to be the cause of uh, emotional cost for each other, how much more can we be embarrassed to be... Uh, the cause of financial cost. But Paul has got a rather remarkable uh, perspective on this. As he writes in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. He also calls their gifts a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul's not just happy to receive the gifts because they meet his immediate need, uh, although that's certainly true, He's also happy uh, that he has provided an opportunity for fellow believers to please God. How would that change the way that we accept uh, practical help from fellow Christians? Instead of seeing ourselves as creating bother or just being a burden, we're providing an opportunity for them to store up treasures in heaven. Now, obviously, it's something that could be open to abuse, and we need to be careful uh, not to allow that to happen. But it's something to keep in mind all the same. Equally, we need to consider our own giving. Verse 19 is a favourite of many Christians. My God will meet your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But what's interesting uh, is that this verse comes after uh, Paul has talked about how his needs have been met by the Philippians. So it's not really hard to see that when God provides uh, financially, he rarely does it by dropping bundles of cash out of the sky, but by moving his people to give generously to each other. And again, a challenge arises. Are we giving to those of our brothers and sisters uh, who are in need? You only have to look at the material provided by the charity's Barnabas Fund and Open Doors uh, to see the huge needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the whole world. Although charities who do kind of generally philanthropic work do much good, I do think that there is a biblical responsibility for Christians to divert as much of our limited resources to our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ primarily uh, as possible. In Matthew 25, 35, Christ says, that on the last day, he'll say to those who cared for their suffering, brothers and sisters, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Because the church is, in some way, the body of Christ, to love and care for each other is the same as loving and caring for Christ himself. And if that doesn't motivate us, uh, to care for each other I don't know what will so a final concern before I conclude fine you might say yes we have a responsibility to share in the sufferings of the church family and we should care uh, for each other but are we never to try and cheer someone up for fear of sounding glib and unhelpful can we never call someone to rejoice not at all In verses 11, we see Paul's rather astonishing statement that I've learned to be content with whatever I have. Whether he's well fed or hungry, having plenty or being in need, or even languishing in prison, Paul's reached a place where he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. It's a big statement to make, perhaps one we feel uh, is rather unrealistic, even with our own privileged lives. But it is an attitude we must ask God to develop in us, to be content in all situations, to be content in Christ. When we share in each other's suffering, we don't do it just to wallow masochistically in dark emotions. We do it so we can be truly with them in their difficulties and then point them to Christ. He's the only one who can really help any of us. The man of sorrows who took upon himself the sin and suffering of the whole world and yet, only, and yet defeated it the only person who could have done that yes we say to each other your suffering is real I'm not downplaying that because it pains me too but rejoice for there is hope there is life there is resurrection we don't know when those things will arrive but God is with us and he will strengthen us to survive this and I'm really happy to say that in the time that I've been here, I have seen many ways that this church has demonstrated this attitude. The prayer and support given to Peter Lever after breaking his leg, to the Langleys, to Tracy, as she spends time in hospital, to the families of the late Tony Reed and Shirley Lation, and many, I'm sure, many other situations that we're not aware of. It does all speak of a church that's willing to suffer with and care for each other. So let's not lose that. Let's not lose that witness that we have. Well, to finish, I'm going from one type of poetry to another. Some of you may remember this group, uh, the Adverts. They were one of the first punk bands. Their 1978 record, Crossing the Red Sea, uh, is a very interesting reflection of the time. But there's one song... That I particularly want to draw uh, to your attention. It's called New Church, and it goes like this Hang on, if you hang on to faith and meekness, before long it's power for the strong. It's twisted into something evil, something wrong. So I'm riding with the New Church. With these words, the advert's frontman, TV Smith, expressed a different concern than that belonging to William Blake. So, fine, perhaps the church doesn't ignore suffering. Perhaps it should engage with it. But then, where does that leave the church? Perpetually weak, at the mercy of the strong? In a world uh, where the fittest survive, perhaps it would be best to leave the weak behind after all, to try and make the best of things by our own strength. Such a view is entirely rational, Looking at the world on its own, we can see that many of history's most well known and uh, notorious figures took such a view. But the reason that the church is not ashamed to suffer for its brothers and sisters can be found throughout Philippians. It's because Jesus is alive and able to use our sufferings for his glorious purposes that we can do this, that we can have confidence that it won't be all for nothing. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is confident that... He who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21, Paul assures us that... Jesus will transform the body of our humiliation... so it may be conformed to the body of glory. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then... Sorry, if Jesus is not risen from the dead there may well be no particular reason to share in the sufferings of others. Life's short, we'll all end up dead anyway, so you might as well grab what you can. But if Jesus is alive, and he has got a purpose through our suffering as a church, purposes that involve the spread of the gospel and us being conformed to his image, then it really is worth being weak together, no matter what others say. Because we'll have recognised where true strength lies, in the living God. And as we help each other uh, to recognise that fact, no matter how bad things get, we will be able to reach that final day, knowing that no matter how tough the journey was, it really was worth it.